common nature, an exaltation of our living earth, an exploration of our niche within it, and an examination of the lasting solutions we will create by shifting our culture through care, wisdom, and working in community with the earth toward accordance with its way. In this space, we highlight place, building bridges, and finding solutions in the common ground on which we all stand. It is with gratitude and humility that we acknowledge that we are speaking, learning, and broadcasting from the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people, who are the indigenous peoples of this land. Despite tremendous hardship on being forced from here, today their community resides in Wisconsin and is known as the Stockbridge Muncie community. We pay honor and respect to their ancestors past and present as we commit to building a more inclusive and equitable space for all. On this episode, we conclude our conversation between myself, Seamus, and John on what is nature and our place within it. So John, last time we kind of kicked it off with a little intro to me and and my history with kind of waking up to the the truth of the natural world and my place in it. I've always been kind of curious what, what, I don't know if I ever got the real story, the whole story of of how you came to working with the earth. It's, uh, it's funny to take that question and it's like, wow, where to begin? Sure. Uh, I guess uh, I grew up in Long Island, so I, I didn't know anything about, let's see, I knew ivy and sycamore and mint. I knew, I knew three plants by the time I was in uh, a graduate of high school. Yeah. You know, I could do calculus and I could, you know, speak a little Spanish and do some Latin and, but I didn't know a damn thing about the natural world. And somehow in college, I studied uh, history and philosophy. And in one of the philosophy courses, uh, it was on uh, Eastern religion. And the professor was, he was into Ramdas. And I remember he, you know, he like played some clips by him for us. And I was, I was really intrigued by that night. So I, I borrowed this whole set of cassettes and started listening to them. And, you know, I was curious at the time. Uh, I guess my background was that I was generally nervous about drugs, uh, you know, besides alcohol and weed. That Like those seemed pretty innocuous. But I always had kind of that sort of don't cross the Rubicon because there's no going back or that kind of uh, mentality. Um, but I would say that Ramdas changed my mind about, uh, mushrooms and LSD. One of the, the stories that he, he told was his, his guru was, uh, Neem Karoli Baba. And he, he tells this story about how, you know, he's traveling in India and he's got all this acid with him. And his, uh, his guru says to him, and Neem Karoli Baba was kind of known for being uh, this mystical yogi, he would he would do things like he would seemingly be able to read people's minds, and he just had these these kind of far out abilities. And uh, for those who who wouldn't know, Ramdas was Richard Alpert. He was the um, he was a psychology professor at Harvard with Timothy Leary. And um, in the '60s, they they sort of led this movement that Leary popularized: uh, turn on, tune in, drop out. 
And, you know, the idea was that through taking LSD and, and mind altering, uh, substances, you could, uh, tap into real culture and you would drop out of the toxic culture, um, in the, in the broad, broader society. And, um, it's really interesting the the two, the divergent paths that Leary and Alpert ended up walking. Alpert took initiation from Neem Kroli Baba, and he, he affectionately called him Maharaji. So Maharaj calls uh, Ramdas over, and he says, "Have you got some of that uh, that yogi medicine?" And he's like, "What?" He's <laughs> like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, I you've been taking that yogi medicine, haven't you?" And he's like. He's trying to like figure out what he's talking about. He realizes he's talking about the acid. So he says, yeah, bring it here. So he like takes out his hole. He's got like a little vial. He's got all these tabs in it. And Maharaj grabs it and takes like 10 tabs or it's like some crazy amount all at once. And <laughs> Ramdas is like, oh my God, what's going to happen? <laughs> like, this is going to be a disaster. And um, he's really, he's sitting there like really nervous to see what the result is going to be. And, you know, that stuff takes a little time to set in. So 15 minutes goes by, nothing, half hour goes by, nothing. And then all of a sudden, like, he sees him like hiding under the blankets and like making funny noises. And he's like, oh my gosh, people are going to find out that I just dosed, you know, this like holy man. <laughs> then... Maharaj sort of drops the blanket and he and he's like, now I'm just messing with you. <laughs> he says that basically those chemicals don't really have any effect on him because he's a- already raised his consciousness to such a degree that it's as though he has the insights of, of those uh, medicines without necessarily the need to take them. And I heard that story and I was really intrigued and I was like, all right, what is this stuff, <laughs> you know? And uh, it just uh, happened to be uh, that my roommates had taken mushrooms a couple times and, you know, they had offered them to me. And finally I said, all right, I, I, I got to see what, what, what this is like for myself. And uh, so I ended up ingesting them. And I just remember having these visions of, of like the earth as a living thing. It was almost like... I felt I had been blind and now I could see like very much in a, this, this kind of biblical motif. But I think, a, you know, a good measure of uh, if, if those medicines are working is that you become less dependent on substances rather than more. Yeah. So then I, I suppose that was my, my doorway into a more living relationship with the earth. I wanted to start gardening, which I then, uh, after college, I moved to California. I, I got a garden right away, started planting vegetables. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just like, you know, bought some, bought like some peppers and just stuck them in the ground and overwatered them and like practically killed them. It, you know, it was one of those deals. But I remember I would like go out and talk to the plants every day. I was like, I was just all excited about, you know, having a relationship with a plant. And at some point, I, I someone gave me a permaculture book. My mother-in-law was the first person. Um, some years later, I was, you know, getting into gardening and and community-related things. And the thing which caught me right away about 
permaculture was. So prior to getting handed that book, I was working uh, in the environmental movement. And a lot of that kind of world uh, is very much the the don'ts. And um, when I found permaculture, it was like the do's. And that really excited me. It wasn't like if you get the the environmental checklist, it's like, don't use plastic and try to share, you know, those kind of things. Um, and permaculture gave this alternative to uh, living in a way which brought, you know, reduced your supply chain needs to as minimum as possible by doing things yourself. So making your own forms of energy as much as possible. And that just really kind of blew my mind. Uh, so yeah, I guess, uh, the only other thing I would add to that is, um, yeah, just like spending more time walking in nature, um, just trying to, you know, find silence, especially outdoors. And, uh, once I got hooked with like making your own compost and I mean, I also got to mention getting into native plants because before that it was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to, you know, feed yourself from your own garden. But when you plant uh, habitat plants, you're also now inviting the, the, the natural world back. Um, you know, you're feeding native birds and, and you're creating habitats for uh, the living ecosystem. And uh, yeah, I guess all of that became for me sort of like a like a living web that I participate in. Yeah, I guess that that's sort of it in a nutshell. You mentioned permaculture. Um, I know what that is. You know what that is. <laughs> but, you know, just, just for the advocation of our audience, uh, maybe we should get into a little bit of a quick rundown. Mm-hmm. Please. Okay. So... <laughs> <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> uh, I gained my permaculture design certificate, uh, which is the official accreditation to being a permaculture teacher, um, according to one of the originators, David Holmgren, the other being Bill Mollison, his um, grad professor. And in my certificate course, and mine own, it ends up being a, a disciplic thing, wherein you have a lineage from your teacher to the first teacher that might have given that a PDC down to you know, the originators. My teachers were taught directly by David Holmgren, so two degrees from, from the source, not that that matters in any kind of supremacy or any hierarchical thing, just to say there's a lineage here and it, it's an each one teach one kind of a way of doing things, according to the, you know, the originators. Permaculture, is, the, the accreditation has kind of evolved into, um, I guess, undergraduate courses, and et cetera, now. Um, but when it was handed to me, my understanding is that it is primarily in, over being any single kind of practice or... Um, you know, hands-on how-to, it is primarily a design methodology, a way of approaching how we interact with, the, especially the natural world, utilizing the, you know, tropes of the way that natural world does for itself um, and for us all, and engaging in our designs with it in a way that uh, recursively builds resilience, habitat, and security for all living things involved. Meaning to say, you look at the various resources, you look at the context, you look at the goals for what you want for that place, ideally perpetuation, um, sustainably, and with minimal input over time, 
and you build your designs, whether it be a garden, a homestead, a farm, a park, a business consortium, a community, a school, in such a way where over time, less and less input is needed because the whole system begins to create its own uh, support and thus also grows in a way that is, um, let's say, ecological or, or natural. And as it was given to me, permaculture is primarily built on a set of ethics, that being traditionally earth care, uh, people care, and this third one has a number of um, terms, but I, I like future care, wherein uh, you, not, you reinvest your surpluses in such a way that you are building more opportunity for the system to continue to grow in a healthful way. Um, and in, in the um, apocrypha of the permacultural world, there has been become a, a, a fourth ethic, which I really enjoy, handed down from uh, the author Jesse Bloom. She wrote a book called Practical Permaculture, which is just one of my favorites as far as just a, a straight text book kind of approach. Uh, and in that, she puts in a fourth ethic called the transitional ethic, which is to say, if you as a practitioner are engaging with the permaculture mindset in your designs and you are working to the best of your ability given such and really utilizing the principles, which I will get into, um, then you can, you know, you're doing the right thing. You know, so long as you're on track and you're, you have it in your mind that you're not trying to be exploitative upon your place and um, you're looking to live in a more harmonious way with your environment, then you're doing the right thing. And that is to kind of um, head people off at this sort of um, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. You know, you're not doing it right because you don't have an herb spiral or you're not doing swales. Any true permaculturist knows that it's not about the specific practice it's about appropriate applied use of those practices given a holistic design. Great. Yeah. That's why I passed it to you for the technical. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I would, in much less technical analysis, I would, I would throw out, you know, for me, it just it comes down to uh, there is agriculture, right? And if we look at uh, that, current agricultural practices, uh, large-scale commercial agriculture, I mean, it really just treats the earth as a mining operation. It's like extract as much as you can and then get the hell out of there, um, which, you know, basically tends to leave, you know, 20 years after a commercial farm's been started, it's going to be like a wasteland. You won't be able to grow much other than weeds after, after you know, they get through with it. And permaculture meaning permanent culture so it's much more of a this is our permanent locale and we're going to along the lines of future care that you were bringing up we're going to work with it so that it only grows in resilience and diversity you know resilience meaning uh if a natural event or man-made event uh, comes about uh to disrupt it <clears throat> it's going to be able to heal from that wound because it has so many uh, diverse inputs that can fulfill the functions of other things. So, uh, you know, a pest comes in and, and wipes out, you know, your say a certain uh, crop. The, the 
ecosystem itself on a permaculture plot is able to basically heal that and potentially even repel the pest because it 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 uh, creates a natural system of ecological checks and balances. So uh, permanent agriculture, uh, you know, is it is the relationship that the community has to the land with the intention to stay there permanently rather than to, you know, just get whatever you can out of it. And Seamus, you can probably speak more to this. Uh, there was a, I, I believe, uh, Mollison and Holmgren uh, took a lot of their insights from Native American indigenous uh, practices. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, and I was just about to say, whenever we speak about permaculture, we must honor the influences that Mollison especially, and also Holmgren together with him, had in kind of devising that design methodology. They were primarily looking at indigenous uh, cultures and looking at how their approach to living on their land um, derived the practices that they used given their circumstances in their, in their place. Um and there are countless examples throughout history and across the world of such ancient and indigenous cultures living in their place for what might have been perpetuity were it not for whatever you know, change that they did to affect upon their system to cause degradation, if it was them at all. This is maybe a topic for another episode, but that is something that you know, there has been uh, some controversy in the world of permaculture around its evolution and its application within our modern 21st century uh, execution, where it's become kind of this white man, you know, saviorist kind of approach. And as white men, I think it's a very important for us to acknowledge that that is not the direction that permaculture should be going in. And it shouldn't be confused that this is solely the work of two or even one white male. These men were influenced. And the best of my knowledge, I know that Holmgren was, was especially a good at attributing his, um, his influence and citing his sources. I know in my own uh, permaculture design certificate, my teachers who were taught by him made sure to press that point to, to us as students. So, and that, that, that being said, I also I really enjoy that you bring up the differences between the the permacultural approach and what is now unfortunately the, the quote unquote traditional agricultural approach, which is ultimately extractive, as you said, a mining operation upon the land rather than a true farming or gardening approach, which is you know if you're truly gardening, you're trying you're not trying to sh- you know totally destroy your soil, you're not trying to leave your space lifeless and which is what traditional agriculture heavy tillage you know uh, chemical pesticides and genetically modified crops in, in you know things grown in labs irrespective of the history of the species and its you know natural genetics and the place where that evolution happened um, and the circumstances on which it thrives best this sort of take it to the lab and make it right through science or through really through industry, we're seeing is flawed intrinsically because of many reasons, but maybe one of the most primary that I see is because of its motivation. It's not attempting to care. It's attempting to take. That to me speaks more of, of what seems to be 
you know, this weird, you know, modern trope of empire and asserting dominance upon the world. So an, an empire being that it falls under uh, an emperor or an empress kind of inherently means that the authority power is the one emperor or the one empress and no others can close, which is irrespective of the humility of mankind and our place within nature. So for you, so empire indicates anti-democratic. For right? sure, 100%. And, and more than that, it, it goes looking at the practices of empire in, uh, throughout history it also implicates that, or indicates that uh, there's a desire for a homogeneity of that emperor's culture. At least that, that's how it's been shown if you look at definitely the British Empire and, you know, and, and all empires, especially up until the last century, have had uh, an in, you know, inherent quality of extraction and exploitation in order to um, bolster its growth and power, which... I mean, in my, my own opinion, is the root cause of our displacement and, and disconnection to nature. Uh, I'm thinking of Alexander the Great. And, um, you know, in a sense, he was spreading in his mind uh, the high culture of the Greeks. And that was, you know, part of his impetus for uh, basically just marching all the way from uh, Western Europe to India. Uh, so there's sort of a cultural hegemony that comes with empire. Um, I feel like that's uh, more foundational than necessarily, you know, the, the exploitative uh, side, which is a, you know, definitely a result or a consequence of some of that. Mm. I guess we'd have to ask all the tribes that uh, didn't make it out of the conquest of Alexander the Great see what they think about how empire works. I don't think the tribes were necessarily eradicated. It's not as though, you know, the, uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on what, what it, it would be like the Celts or, you know, various running through uh, there probably would have been like the, some remnants of Syrians and the Babylonians and Persians, especially they, they were definitely right. But they weren't, point, but it's not that they were eradicated or sure. Yeah, and, and that's, that is true. Yeah, throughout history, I think you can find examples of, let's say, quote-unquote, benevolent emperors. Uh, Alexander the Great is... I didn't mean yeah. to say he was benevolent. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that goes... No, I mean, in, yeah. he, he, he waged mass war throughout, you know, an entire continent. So, right. um, you know, but it's clear, at least, that in his mind, uh, he was doing some sort of virtuous deed by spreading you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yeah. Amongst other things. Sure. I guess, I guess the question is then is, is, is it as, as humans, if all humans are created equal here on this planet and, or at least have, have equal um, potential um, in their culture, is it right to, or is it, you know, humane to assert your culture upon others in a way is through warfare? which has been the mark of empire throughout history, period, I think. And, and warfare has definitely changed structure and, and method as we've approached the 20th century. Now warfare is almost exclusively, definitely obviously not in certain places around the world, you know, at, at the moment for sure, but is almost exclusively economic. 
Um, well, the the connection to democracy is also interesting because it goes back, you know, it's not just the, the British Empire. You go back to the Athenians, you know, one of the first democracies we have on record. And the, you know, the so-called Delian League they initially set up was to be uh, encouraging other nation states to embrace democracy. And it ultimately led to uh, Athens basically just dominating that league and turning it into, you know, more of a, what we think of as empire, uh, tyrannical in a sense, um, exploitative in the sense that uh, you either joined or you were crushed like that. And there were states who tried to refuse and they were literally crushed, meaning uh, the men were sold into slavery and the women were taken as you know slaves or worse. So, um, yeah, so... I'm thinking of what is the connection to democracy in terms of have we ever seen a democracy uh, in a nation state which didn't devolve into, um, you know, a hegemonic power seeking to dominate other nation states? I guess that's the problem with, uh, you know, any kind of. What's 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 the issue there? Is is it is it the nationalist identity that, that fueled into empire that creates a, a superiority complex over others' cultures that makes one want to uh, assume power over them? I guess that's that might be a question there. Um, I guess when I bringing this to the table, what I what when I when I'm I'm considering empire as applied to this conversation um i i am working on kind of more modern connotations um given the history of what we as nations that we've called empires up to now including the american empire uh although it's not what we're all on, we are on paper but um i guess i i see a sort of a sense of empire being the an embodiment of the ideal that humanity meant to dominate the world. Uh, or one nation, one person is meant to dominate the world. Um, whereas what seems to be more natural um, is that is a plurality of individual minds, wills, power, and cultures. Um, and as is shown in nature, diversity is the key to resilience. And uh, honoring each other's place and niche um, and and sort of heart desire and 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 soul purpose is with respect to each other um, holistically seems to be a a more sure way forward as far as being attuned to how we as uh, humankind and culture are meant to um, most helpfully live on this planet with each other and with our home. So I guess that's why I bring, uh, if, to me, that, that second kind of notion, that versus, it kind of sparks up a, um, a sense of what might the Garden of Eden might have been like, where 
you know, we didn't, we, we were not yet out of a wild mind um, and not yet kind of corrupted by our um, self absorptions. Um, and, and thus, this connection toward uh, each other and, you know, our place. So, I mean, you can carry that with you however you want. Um, I'm really curious to hear what you, what you think about that. But the, the, I have really been enjoying lately the idea, this sort of polemic of empires and Edens. And um, it does seem to me that empire is, you know, inherently flawed. The empire that, that I'm talking about, the, that mindset, inherently flawed given the circumstances, the parameters, and, you know, the healthful forward motion of the systems, natural systems on earth. And if we are to align with them, we have to find a sort of sense of respect for ourselves, each our own, um, respect for uh, our sort of honorable place and, and, and trust and truth to that place and a respect for each other and how we are all that. And the fact that we all um, are meant to be here because we're here. I think that's a, you made a lot of great points, and uh, I guess a few things came to mind. One being, uh, it's uh, talked about in the hidden life of trees how trees from all different types, whether they be pine or deciduous, evergreen, deciduous, um, or you know, ash, oak, maple, they will all. Uh, share resources between themselves in order to bolster the community of trees, if you will. So they'll actually be able to sense if a tree is in danger due to disease um, or other environmental factors, and they will literally send its support through their roots. Um, how do we replicate that on the political level? Because you know, what we're talking about is, okay, we have, you know, yeah, we need diversity. Yeah, we need uh, to work together and create a common good. How do we avoid the inevitable human nature, which is that some people will seek to exploit others? And you can put that label on, oh, it was because he was, you know, into empire or he was into, you know, the wrong political party or, you know, you name it. Um, and uh, an interesting, just because we were talking about ancient Greece, the uh, the Athenians used to have this this uh, principle uh, called ostracism. And we, you know, of course, we know the modern word to ostracize. It actually meant that you could get voted to be ostracized. You were kicked out of the nation for 10 years. And the principle by which someone was ostracized was if they were suspected of becoming a hegemonic tyrant. So a tyrant was literally the person who tried to steal power from the group. And if anyone was even suspected of that, they would be kicked out of the kicked out of Greece for 10 years. <laughs> and it was said that uh, if, if they tried to sneak back in during that period, that any person, no matter what their status, was allowed to kill that person. So it's a little bit extreme. <laughs> But it's like, but, uh, you know, the reason I bring it up is how do we identify, let's face it, there are a lot of sociopaths in this world, and most of them happen to be our leaders. How do we, 
stop that from happening, whatever political system we want to set up and allow this, you know, plurality of, uh, yeah, plurality of culture and of ideas um, to, to flourish in a way that um, allows each to be independent and to support the differences, you know, in the same way that the maple supports the ash, they're, you know, they're different species, but, um, you know, they have somehow trees have that awareness that, uh, it's important for them all to cohabitate the earth together. Yeah. Well, how do we do that? I guess. And not to say that I have any answers, but some things that sparked to mind initially are, you know, well, we've seen people, uh, throughout history try to attend to, a, uh, a bringing down of empires, a, a, uh, truncating of power, a, a turning back around a, a, a revolt, a revolution. Um, we've had a lot of revolutions in the past, and uh, they always end up seeming to and kind of evolve into or devolve into um, corruption. Uh, you know, like you said, it seems like we kind of have lost that practice of ostracization in, in some ways. And that's something that, that uh, to the credit of the democracy of the Greeks, that they that had that awareness uh, the, of the danger of concentration of power. Um, but ultimately, politically, power seems to rise to the top without um, real uh, transparency and uh, active checks and balances given through knowledge of everything that is going on. And that's why, you know, governments are so secretive. Not to, to keep secrets from their enemies, well, maybe to keep you secrets from the enemies, but primarily the enemies seem to be their own people. You know, people that would take power away from the ones in charge who don't want to give it up. Um, and to that point, I, it sort of seems to me that, that, you know, moving forward with this eye for an eye mentality is only going to, again, as they say, leave the world blind. And if we want to stay awake and we want to stay seeing things as they are and might be and could be, maybe should be. Um, I think maybe revolution isn't the way forward, but something more along the lines of a holistic understanding of, of, of our situation, of each other's desires, of our true needs and our place within our um, circumstance, that being the natural world and the earth we live upon. Um, and so, might sound a little lovey-dovey, hippy-dippy, but, you know, truly compassion. And, uh, and an honorable, honorable, honorable regard and respect for each other, for ourselves, and, and our, our earth. Um, to me, that kind of sparks more of an idea, if it were to move forward... And if we were all to attend to that amendment within ourselves, as well as supporting that amendment for each other, it seems to speak more of a renaissance than a revolution. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's really interesting you bring up that juxtaposition, revolution, renaissance, because um, it, I was contemplating that uh, at the time of the American Revolution, uh, you had you know, England was sort of the epicenter of, of uh, witnessing two revolutions going on. Uh, one was their colony, and then shortly after was their longtime rival, France. 
And uh, there was one commentator in England, uh, Edmund Burke, who at the time was uh, uh, part of the Liberal Party, and he was writing that uh, he was essentially on the side of the Americans in terms of saying, look, all they're asking for are very reasonable, they want to be represented in Parliament, and uh, they're not asking for anything crazy here. And um, in a large part, he was ignored, and he predicted that it would be a disaster for England, and sure enough, it was. Um, And then shortly after that, at the time of the French Revolution, he wrote a pamphlet, uh, very well known, called Reflections on the Revolution in France, in which he predicted that it would devolve into chaos. And part of that was his observations of how it began and uh, the the sort of the disregard for traditional uh, institutions, which held, you know, for better or worse, seemed to hold people in check. And it, it wasn't long after that that the French Revolution went completely by the wayside. I mean, it just went completely bat crazy. <laughs> I mean, it was it was bad news with the bloody the reign of terror and, and everything else. So uh, the reason I'm, I'm bringing it up is because how do we invoke that spirit of renaissance without going to that dark place culturally um, as a society? Because, uh, I mean, in present day America, we see that it just all the time, it feels like we're on the brink of, uh, at least to me, it seems that we're on the brink of some sort of cultural civil war, and um, yeah, I mean, how do we how do we overcome that without turning to violence? And you brought up a, a you know to me a key point, which is compassion. Um, you know, to me, that just means trying to understand the other person, trying to understand where they're coming from, putting yourself in their shoes, and saying, you know rather than just name-calling and putting them in a box, um, trying to find commonalities with them and trying to build bridges so that we can, you know, overcome that tendency towards uh, totalitarian empires and work more towards, you know, that vision that you have of, of Eden, um, you know, the, the pluralistic cooper- cooperation. Mm. So I'm hearing uh, radical care. That's what it sounds to me. It sounds like caring for the issue at its root. I think it starts with listening. Yeah. <laughs> as, it, as it must. Yeah. Right. As it yeah. must. Really, listening to each other, listening to the truth behind whatever deceits the people are coloring their arguments with, listening to true need for what is enough for each and every one of us. And... How far do we really need to go for this pursuit of happiness? And is the happiness that we're pursuing for, for yourself and f- for everyone? Yeah. Yeah, is it, is it healing or is it dividing? Truly, really, yeah. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach out with any comments or questions, feel free to email us at ourcommonnaturepodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at our.common.nature.